Sure well, it's good good to see all of you thanks for doing this this is cool it's gonna no be did i did i ever tell you guys the story about when cameron performed at tarleton and he thought he ripped his pants <laughs> i had to check on so stage. no no no, no. <laughs> or is it so that he one? had like the he had like the you know like tape thing or whatever when he sat down like he heard like a rip oh. But Cameron didn't have to check. Cameron asked me to check. <laughs> okay, that's that's happened a few times, unfortunately. But I, I do remember that one now. <laughs> now, and before so... I put my black pants on, I check the crotch to see how worn it is because, like, <laughs> I I wear the same performance pants, and then you're doing the bouncy ball thing, and like you're inevitably gonna blow them out at one point. I, I went to a wedding a couple weeks ago and discovered at the airport uh, that my pants were ripped on oh. like on the way to the wedding, so had to stop and get a pair. But they're stretchy, so shouldn't happen again. <laughs> oh my goodness! What a great way to start this episode. <laughs> this is fabulous. I'm are we so are we going? Are we starting? We're we. I'm recording. This, this is, is all in. <laughs> this is just for Ksenia's files now. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Odd Percussion Podcast, episode 336. My name is Ksenia Komjenovic, and I will be your host for today, but I'm not alone. As with me are my beautiful friends, Carly Vigna. Hello, Ksenia. Hey, Carly. How are things going up there? You know, it's a cold and rainy weekend, and this fall, I just have this impending feeling of like, whoa, winter is coming. I think that's called depression. <laughs> not quite sorry, sorry i don't know i don't know usually like fall is so exciting like i'm totally into pumpkins and leaves and you know all that stuff but this year i'm like winter is coming <laughs> it's the, funny the second, second real winter after 10 years in miami so i don't know yeah. aside from that everything's good semester's moving along swimmingly that's great. That's good to hear. Um, ben Charles or Sen Barles, what's up? <laughs> I can I can confirm that Carly uh, missed the autumn season in Miami. I remember many complaints about that when we first got there. <laughs> I'd like wear a scarf in the air conditioning and try to create the magic, but you know. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay, we have a lot of interesting cases in the room. Um, and Caleb Pickering, the master of composition. Hey, we're, so we got business to take care of, but we got to throw it out. All right, Cassini, you finished Slaved them up. Tell yeah. Us about, I know this is your episode, but tell us about your recent wind band piece you finished. <laughs> oh, man, I don't know. It needs to be performed because I don't know what I did. Um, so <laughs> I, I need to hear it. I really don't know what it's like. I just know that it was really, really, really bloody emotionally exhausting, and people should pay composers way more than whatever they're being paid. Uh, so it, it was really exciting, but oh my God, I mean, I, I, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't like fall asleep until 4 a.m. after I had sent everything out because I was just like, uh, adrenaline was so high. Does, it, does, it have, does it have cool, weird time signatures that wind players are going to have trouble counting? There are some cool time signatures, but it's all about Slavic gods and, you know, it's it's hopefully going to be cute. I hope the kids like it. Um, but Pickering, you just had like a turbo writing mode recently. A tor turbo? Like oh, I thought you said a tour boat. 
No. Turbo? No. So there'd be an accent. I'd, um, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a, a turbo riding mode. Yeah, El Paso UT asked me to uh, uh, write a piece for the TMEA 2023 showcase. So uh, yeah, we got the commission on September 1st, set it out on October 1st, and uh, it was a fun and exciting month. Um, yeah. I cannot imagine that. It's I've been making parts in the past month. Like my oh, writing's oh, been done for a while. I don't know how you did that. So before we move on, can I throw it out here just because this has been the big thing? Yeah. Has anybody followed hashtag chess drama? I've heard about this. Is anybody oh. following the the Hans Neiman uh, Magnus Carlson thing? I, I heard that, yeah, he was uh, accused of cheating. Yeah, it's extreme. If you, it sounds not interesting, but you should look into it. It's extremely uh, intriguing. That that I, has been that has been my life for the past uh, about two days. People should give you more music to write. You somehow don't have enough to do. Um, but that's cool. What was it? He had something hidden in his shoe, or what was it? What they was can't it? prove it yet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, Ben. That was the that was the Mimi answer. Uh, so uh -oh. Magnus Carlson played white first, and in, in chess, if you play white, always goes first, and you have an advantage. And he hasn't lost playing white first since two thousand and ten. Whoa! And uh, they they ran Hans Niemann's moves against like a couple of computers. And it's like the exact moves computers would make. So they're like, no way. He cheated. How how did he do it? And they can't figure it out. But Ben has a theory. No, I don't have a theory. I was just gonna say, Ksenia, could you could you plug that uh, cool chess piece that your students did and made a great recording of? <laughs> um what is it? What's it called? The game of the century? Yeah, that was it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a cool piece. Everyone should check it out if you want a cool epic uh you know, chess game, and it's all in rhythm. You should check out that piece. It's really cool. Um, the chat is already, like, horrible. Uh, rated R. Um, anyway, so um, we are going to talk about making a living today. And I tried to devise a little pun by making it be like, are you getting paid or played? But that's not how English works, because if you take the word paid and you insert L in there, it's like, are you paid or plaid, which is Caleb. Um, so I guess Caleb is not getting paid. I don't know what the what the thing is there, but that's English for you. Um, anyway, this episode drops on October 13, and um, I looked up a little bit of music history, and apparently Mahler gave his first public piano concert in 1870 on that day, when he was just 10. And I was like, that's cool. How much money did Mahler make? Because we're going to talk about money. And so I tried Googling that, and then like suggested questions that popped up on uh, Google were like, is Mahler related to Beyonce? And I was like, okay, everything goes back to Beyonce. Turns out the Norman Lebrecht, who, by the way, runs the famous um, Slip Disc website, if you don't know about it, it's, if you want to know all the like classical music gossip uh, that comes up, just like go there. Um, he wrote about how there was a family tie revealed. But anyway, so I looked up uh, his money and I couldn't understand it because it was in a currency that really doesn't exist anymore uh, fully. But it says there were some calculations done with like inflation and da, da, da. And it said that uh, Mahler's salary 
in modern numbers would be about $600,000 for 90 concerts, which means it's $6,600 per concert. And we don't know if he had like, you know, three concerts of the same program, like you play Friday, Saturday, Sunday or whatever. But that seems to be less than what people are paid now. Um, and so I looked up like maestro millionaires um, salaries and turns out that of course the wealthiest, this is from 2021, was Muti in the Chicago Symphony, made $3.4 million. And then we go Dudamel, MTT, Nelsons, Yannick, yada, 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 yada. And then number 10 is Marin Alsop with $750,000, which considering the woman's influence, it seems terribly low. Um, but anyway, they all uh, got paid more than Mahler did uh, some hundred years ago for his work. So, that's it. That's what you know. He had his first recital and he wasn't paid extremely well, but not too poorly either. All right. Um, Caleb, you have some. Is that, awesome. that 6,600 in back then dollars or today dollars? Today dollars. Cool. That's with him. Yeah, adjusted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was paid like 12,000 grossels or something. I don't know what that was. Meckles, I think. Meckles. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, yeah, this is offensive for me, but I, I can't remember the exact currency. Anyway, we get to move along to our guest for today. Um, it is our buddy Cameron Leach. And you know Cameron because he's a friend of the podcast and a returning guest. And I remember when I first learned about Cameron, I was super impressed with his career being on the up and up. And there he was, he's this like young guy, very candid about his career pursuit, which I love, very brave about risking safety for his dreams and being very honest about every facet of pursuing a career as a soloist and percussion. And also the reason why I immediately thought of Cameron was because he, was very open about talking about money online and calling out, not necessarily people, I don't remember seeing uh, Cameron pointing any fingers, but there would be an occasion of like, hey, you know, if you feel like this is fine as a way to pay or not pay people, you're wrong and let's talk about it. And so I just wanted to say, um, I thought he was a, a great person to discuss and sort of help our young listeners learn about financial health. So Cameron, Thanks for being here and welcome. Well, that's funny. I I am not the uh, financial uh, advisor that I need to be to be sitting here talking about this. But um, yeah, some of the posts you alluded to, we can talk about that. Um, I just wrapped up a negotiation more or less yesterday for something that's pretty big. So like there's a case study for me that we can talk about uh, on the or uh, orchestral side of things. But yeah, I'm curious to see where all of this goes. I mean, I'm I'm going to be an open book. Like if if you guys are asking specific dollar amounts for anything, uh, I don't care. You know, like we can talk about whatever it is. Um, so yeah, I'm just looking forward to it. So I love it. Um, so I wanted to know first, when was this something that sort of came to mind? When did you first start thinking about money in terms of you know I'm going to perform and I'm going to get money or I'm going to ask for money? And this is actually a question for the whole room, but I'd let Cameron to respond first. Well, the first time I started thinking about it was towards the end of grad school, because at the time, I mean, I was already playing professional gigs in upstate New York. I was playing with small orchestras up there and doing like little talks to like middle school, you know, stuff like that. And you basically take whatever they offer you at that point. It's like 50 bucks, 75 bucks a service, whatever you go do it. And then the, t the first time I really started thinking about money seriously 
which looking back, it's not so serious, was when I was booking my first tours at the end of grad school, which would have been like this Florida tour I went on, um, and then maybe a couple dates in Tennessee and Kentucky. And at the time, I just needed work. I needed those first shows. Again, I've always talked about there's no internship for soloists. You just have to go out and get that experience on your own, and the only way to do that is at first unpaid or paid very little. So I was taking like 100, 200 bucks to play a full recital, bring all the gear myself and get on the road. But that's why I say, you know, it's not that serious when I'm thinking about the money then. I wasn't taking it as seriously as I do today. And when when all of that really changed um, was COVID. So we can talk about why that is, but that's kind of my my intro to it. And I know, you, you know, others are going to speak about it too. But in the beginning, it was just take what you can get, get work experience, and then I think COVID, I, I shifted my gears in my head about what my priorities actually are and what's actually like, what what matters to me now is the health, safety, uh, financial stability of me and my family, not, you know, not uh, oh, yes. needing a bunch of gigs. That's, that's, that's separate. And you should be willing to give up work if it doesn't pay you uh, appropriately. Yeah. Carly? You know, one of the things that shifted... Uh, the the perspective for me was um, around the end of undergrad, I started getting teaching gigs and playing gigs that resulted in these mysterious tax forms, the 1099 <laughs> that I had no idea how to handle. And I remember like sitting down with my dad and figuring out, oh, like now I'm self-employed and, you know, I have to claim this income and I can deduct expenses and just sitting there and thinking about, um, you know, the, the mileage to get to the gig and the mallets I brought, I bought for the gig and, you know, the money I spent on teaching supplies and all of that and how that, you know, balances against the income that you get makes you realize, you know, what, what the value of what you're offering is. And certainly I think sometimes um, younger people don't consider the costs that go into these gigs that we, we play and probably also don't know how to, you know, write these expenses off on our taxes. So that was a big shift for me at that point I was like oh this is a business and you know there's needs to be profit and it needs to feel um worthwhile in every sense of the word yeah Ben to sort of follow up what Carly was talking about with costs it's it's always been kind of funny to me like the the few times that I've like traveled to be a guest artist or something like that the budget is actually mostly for the flight and the hotel and like and if there was an equipment rental or something like that and it's almost like kind of offensive it's like so out of you know some large chunk of money 20 percent actually went to me that the the university or whoever was hosting had to had to pay um but cameron i wanted to circle back around to you were talking about like your early career and taking the full recital gig for 150 dollars and sleeping on an air mattress or, or something like that um how do you know, like, at what point did you feel like the switch had flipped to where you said, no, I'm not doing that anymore. My my rate is this firm, no, no negotiating below that, et cetera. Yeah, I think after those first couple of tours that I did, I realized what, how much work went into it. Like, I, I knew what it meant to prepare that music, and I more or less knew what it meant to get on stage and do it, um, not in a consistent, you know, every other day context, like being on the road, but you play recitals in school and all that kind of stuff. But when I was the one schlepping the gear in, uh, setting up, doing everything, you know, 12, 14 hour day, playing the show, loading back up and driving to the next city that night, I was like, oh, this sucks. <laughs> you know, like very quickly <laughs> you realize how terrible this is. And um, 
so you kind of immediately flipped that switch. I remember being in Florida and I was like, oh my God, you know, it's 1130 PM and I have to drive three hours and I have a show tomorrow night too. And that was like night two or three of, of 14 days being down there. Um, that's, that's when I realized there was a problem. I, that's early on, but then from identifying the problem to then proving your worth to people, that's a really interesting thing, especially in the early stages, because you want to be out, you want to be playing as much as possible and posting it on your Instagram and, and on your feed. So people see that you're working, the more they see you're working, the more they feel like you're legit, you're going to become more in demand. But then you actually need to start creating demand for yourself and stop taking every gig. Because if you take every gig, there's nothing special about you going anywhere. You know, so like, to, for me now, I mean, I've largely been off the grid for two years. I've loved it. Because I feel like when I come back, I'm not going to play a show for less than four figures. Like, I mean, that's low. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not going to play for less than $1,000. And that's just going to be what it is. But back then, I think I set a rate for myself of after the first couple of tours, it was like 500 bucks, I got to make at least 500 bucks profit. And that's not including hotels and stuff. Uh, I tried to separate those things very quickly so that I wasn't dealing with what you're talking about with making 20% of the fee, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I love, I love that. I'm so on that train. Like I'm, we're going to go deep in this, but I want to make sure we don't skip Caleb and Caleb, when did you become financially conscious? Uh, for me, it's probably a few years ago, sometime during my doctorate. Um, I mean, for me, most, most of my non-salary income is commission and, and sales. So, um, I mean, geez, just this year is the first year that I've started getting real serious with um, commission contracts, like it's mm. an actual legally binding thing. And um, it's, you know, uh, I got it from some someone who I won't name here just because I, I didn't ask their permission. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, they gave me a contract and uh, I edited it to fit my needs. And um, yeah, I think really... Um, I started getting more serious about it when the money started getting more serious. Um, you know, when, when suddenly uncle Sam's like, Hey, no, you can't just sweep that under the rug anymore. Like you, we need to know about that. Um, that's when it started getting serious for me. Yeah. And Cameron, has anyone spoken to you about this? I know you listen to a lot of podcasts and you know a lot about business and so on, but has anyone in the percussion world spoken to you about any of this? <laughs> No, I don't think so. I mean, my mentors, well, okay, I, I need to back up. I don't want to be so, you know, making such blanket statements. Bob Brighthop, who was my undergrad teacher who just retired from Capital, he was always great in instilling us, uh, instilling into us, you know, his students, a lot of just business principles and ideas. Nothing was ever really specific money wise, but I think I learned a lot of stuff from him early on. Of course, like Burt was a big mentor for me, but I don't think we ever really talked about stuff like this. You know, our conversations didn't really go there. Talked to Colin a little bit about some of this stuff, but he, you're not going to go to Colin and ask him like, hey, let's talk about your, your numbers, man. You know, you just kind of talk in broad strokes with people that are at that level professionally, I think. So I would say no. I mean, largely, I've just kind of figured this out on my own because I think it hits you in the face really quickly when you say that you want to do something like a solo career as a composer and you maybe aren't doing a lot of side gigs to like prop yourself up. So if you're doing this one thing pretty exclusively, you realize you have to find a way to make a living at it. And this one-to-one -one relationship we have with I play a gig, I get paid an amount of money, I go to the next gig. That is a really hard relationship to 
make sustainable at low low dollar amounts. So you either have to find something where you can make residual income on the side, which as a composer, Caleb, you can probably speak to that. Like that's nice to have even a small amount coming like that. And for me, nowadays, that's my whiskey channel, which is hilarious. And that's a totally different subject, you know. But when you start thinking one-to-one relationship performance to paycheck, you have to raise that fee. It, you just you just have to. I used to I used to look at people who were, remain unnamed, who are my age, who are out gigging, um, and I heard what they were asking for, and I was like, screw them. That sounded offensive to me. That the number they were asking universities for, and now two three years later, I'm like, oh no, that's me. Like I'm do I would do that same thing because you have to you have to take it seriously. Yeah. So you thought that they asked for too much and that was offensive? Yeah, because I was like, look, it was it, it was, for instance, people who were not playing as many shows as I was playing. And I felt really protective of the fact that or really proud of the fact that I was out doing so much. But then you look at it and you go, wait, is it a good thing to be doing this much <laughs> or should I do less for for more and actually have a better success on stage? Because, frankly, I wasn't playing as well as I could have been, you know? Yeah, 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 for sure. For sure. Um, so. What are some things, because you've done, you've had the moment or, or the thing that happened before COVID where you quit your safe job and you just went for this, mm -hmm. but you also play in orchestras and you teach and you do like on your whiskey channel. Um, so what are some things that you've noticed in the real world um, of, of finances and negotiation among percussionists? You mentioned people charging more than you thought was appropriate. But what do you see? What else do you see? Well, I just think we're not very good at it, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. That's the biggest problem is we we don't have anybody talking openly about it. And as artists, we have a very strange relationship with our art. Um, so I think we need to take what we do a little bit more seriously. And for me, I've had to divest myself from thinking about music so personally, you know? Like, it, it's a beautiful thing that I get to do. But part of doing the Whiskey Channel, doing, uh, like I'm right now in this weird limbo acting principal role in Columbus, which we can talk about. Hopefully we'll talk about that today at some point, because that's part of what I just ended up negotiating for. Um, all of that stuff has been money that's supporting me on the side, which has actually become like my main source of income during COVID. And what I'm looking at as an exciting thing is when I get back on the road, I can ask for way more because I'm, I'm going to make myself more scarce, at least when I first come back, because I have these other things that are working so well. And it's not a great thing in the sense of talking about like going all in on your dreams, because like I used to, yeah, I quit my job before I went all in on performing. I'm kind of back to where I was before that because I had to during COVID, you know. Um, so it's interesting to kind of come out of that right now. But I know that, uh, Ben, you got something you want to want to go for here. Oh, I was I was going to ask about this. This goes along with the idea of like promoting yourself and uh, back when I guess you you were here actually right before COVID. So mm -hmm. I think it's February 2020. Uh, back when I was dealing with Cameron, so to speak, um, oh, he dang. had a press kit. <laughs> <laughs> he had a press kit, and I had heard of a press kit. Like I could kind of maybe vaguely tell you what that was, but as soon as I saw Cameron's press kit, I was like, oh, like this is this is a press kit. So. And that's not something I had ever heard of, but it made so much sense, especially as a soloist. So where did you learn about how to, mm. like, what a press kit even was, how to make one, and, like, what, what has that, how has that benefited you? Tell us about your press kit. Yeah, yeah. Well, looking back on it now, 
I, I can't wait to remake it. I can't wait to remake my website, all of, all of those things, because you look at it where it was when, when you were looking at it and stuff like that. And the way I see it today is this was an imitation. You know, like I looked at everything that was out there and I just said, I need something like that. Um, I talk about that kind of in the way that I talk about technique with some students, which is like, you're not going for the functionality of the technique, you're going for the look, especially when you're talking about like the way that West Coast quad drummers play at Blue Devils. People want their hands to look all French and when they're moving around the drums, they look like that, but they don't work like that. So my press kit looked kind of good, I, I think, but it didn't really function the way that I wanted it to function because it was like nine pages long, right? It was like way overboard. So um, I first heard of a press kit, I think, uh, I got to think about this, probably during grad school, either through the arts leadership program at Eastman. I know that at that time, I wasn't able to dig up Colin Curry's press kit. That stuff's pretty hidden online for a lot of these big name guys. Um, but I dug up somebody's and I found it and I was like, oh, it was Peter Ferry. It was Peter Ferry, actually, which um, back then, like I saw that it was the only example I had. So I kind of mimicked that. And then I had a designer put it together for me. But um, yeah, that was my, my first instance of it. And then I can't remember the rest of the question. I mean, yeah, Ben, what, what was the rest of the question? Sorry. Basically, just tell us about the press kit. Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> And then from there, you realize that that's a lot of information. You need to dial that down to like a one-page type thing for specific projects or different parts of what you do. Um, and I think I've learned so much more about branding and marketing and advertising over the last couple of years that getting back to it, it's going to be all about making it much punchier than it used to be. Yeah, and I think it, I saw something, I think it was Jalissa from Yamaha maybe said yeah. something along the lines of like your, your press kit is like exactly what it should be. And also, I don't know if this is the press kit, I guess this is like the technical writer or whatever, but mm -hmm. uh, like Cameron's like needs for the recital were so clear. It was like, I need a five octave marimba of this brand or this brand, this preferred, I need 16 cymbal stands, whatever. And it actually, as a host, it made it so much easier because I wasn't worried like, oh, has he ever played on a marimba one? Is that going to be okay? Like we had absolutely everything sort of in order before he even walked in the door, which was nice. Stage plot was beautiful. I remember seeing your stage plots. They were artwork. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the, so I, I can. I mean, if anyone out there is listening and trying to book a guest artist, like Cameron was like one of the easiest people to deal with because it was all just black and white right there. I, I appreciate it, and I think the whole the whole deal with whether it's the advertising marketing side of it with the press kit or the logistics side of it with the stage plot, it's all just about putting yourself in the other person's shoes, who's on the other end of that document, and like imagining what they're going through as they read through it. And does it make sense? Is it ordered in a logical way? Is it too deep? Like things can be too detailed. And some of my stuff, that's where I'm having an issue is like, I have no shortage of words here in person on a podcast or in writing on paper. So I, to distill things down, whiskey pun, I have to really be careful about how I go about that stuff. So um, I think I have it down now because what I've been doing with the symphony, I, I make stage plots every week for every symphony show and basically a tech writer for every show, more or less in the percussion section. And it's given me enough real world chops and experience doing it that um, I think I, I have better understand what to do now. But I'm I'm glad, you know, that came across on your end, Ben, when you were booking me. That's that's nice to hear. Well, and hearing you talk about it, it's like it's it's all about just clarity. And it's like, do you want any ambiguity in how much you're going to get paid for this? Do you want any ambiguity in as to how your travel is going to work? Like, no, of course not. So why should there be any ambiguity as to what equipment you're going to play on or how it's going to be set up? That's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. 
So um, I would love to talk about negotiation, um, and, but I think we're going to get there. I would first love to know, like, how do you, what would you say to a young person who is first trying to figure out how to set a rate for private lessons, for whatever they're asked to play a church gig locally? Like, how do you set a rate? The first thing you have to do is keep everything in context, you know, and unfortunately that can be really hard at a young, at a young stage because you don't know exactly where you fit into the market. And you need to view it that way. You need to view it as, as art. You also need to view your art as a product in a more business sense. And then you need to, to, to view, view this more broadly as just a market. Stop thinking about like music and art and all that at the end of the day, when you're talking dollars and cents, just think about time invested and all this stuff. But if you are a young person, um, I, my first thing was always to ask people around me for help and see, never be rude, never ask for exact dollar amounts unless they're willing to give it to you. But find somebody that you trust, a mentor, and ask them what makes the most sense. You know, when I, when you're teaching as a young person, your rate is probably going to be some sort of hourly rate, I would imagine. Like if you're working with the drum line or something like this, you might uh, you might also negotiate a flat fee for something. So you, you then at the beginning have to think about hourly or flat fee. What makes the most sense? Um, and what seems the most fair also to the person you're asking that money from. So, um, yeah, that's that's where I would start. I know other people are going to have things to say, too. So. Yeah, I feel like and Cameron might be able to build on this. I feel like I give a lot of credit to Drew Tucker and Gene Kaczynski, who told me, hey, you're charging too little for your music. Mm. And so if you. If you have a product that you believe in, or in your case, a performance ability that you believe in, and you're undercharging it, you're undervaluing it. So people see it as a low value. Whereas if you charge the actual amount of what it's worth and the time you put in, then people recognize it as this, this is a quality product um, that, you know, I want, yeah, I want to be involved in. Yeah. And I think, um, one thing that made me think about that, which is kind of like the shiny toy idea of, you know, if it's a thousand dollars, you're like, oh, that must be worth a thousand dollars, that kind of thing. That's that's really true. And in music, we don't think of that as much. I, I, I learn more about that from a performance point of view when I talk to violinist friends, for instance. They they see things differently than percussion because their solo instrument is more ingrained and it's more heavily valued. But like, let's and say expensive. The world, yeah. <laughs> hey, very much expensive. But no, in the world of whiskey, I hate to keep bringing it back to this, but this is like my real world, world example for just about everything right now is like when companies, some companies are trying to sneakerize the whiskey industry, which is like do the limited sneaker drops. Everybody stands in line for 24 hours and waits for it. And the bottles are a thousand dollars and you taste the stuff and you're like, this is not worth $50. Um, now you, as a performer, you need to be worth a thousand dollars you ask for not the $50, but yeah, you, you really can, you can just set your own rate as long as you believe in it. And the product makes sense for me. It's not only about how well I perform, but I'm also bringing my own rep to the concerts, you know, like that's an original product. I'm also making it really easy for you to work with me. You know, there's not a lot of questions and all that. So you have to think about the full scope of the value you bring, not just like, do I play well on stage? My, my part two, um, and this might not relate to the five of us so much, uh, but I feel like there's always, we run into this issue a lot here. And when I was with Casey at JMU of, uh, you know, local high school calls up, oh, speak of the oh, mother, speak of the devil. Uh, there's the level you start charging as a professional, but then there's, I feel like there's that level where, you know, the local high school call, oh my God, 
local high school calls and says, um, hey, we need we need a drum tech. And they yeah. say, hey, we we don't have any money. Um, you know, we're broke or we have very little money. Um, I feel like a, a big trend lately has been shutting down the the uh, the low paying gig when really they they don't have a, a position to be turning down a gig because you don't have any other gigs coming in. So I don't really have a question. I'm just throwing it out there because I feel like that's a, become a very common thing of of that issue. Well, here's something on that. Um, I, first of all, I would agree with Cameron. He said, talk to a mentor, talk to somebody who's doing what you do in the field. And you don't have to directly say, what do you charge for, you know, two hour sectionals or, or whatever it is, private lessons. But what do you think would be a good rate for me um, to be charging? And I did something similar. And, and even you could ask, like, not just one person, but two or three people who have an idea and a pulse of, of rates and all that. Um, and Caleb, to, to your point, talking about these high schools, I feel like high schools everywhere, um, they need techs, right? They, they need a percussion tech, they need a drumline tech for, for the marching band and those sorts of situations. And they want to hire students because students really, one, like people want to get teaching experience, they want to get out there, they want to, you know, kind of have that um, leadership position. Um, but then they don't have very much room in their budget. But something that happened to me when I was an undergrad, I, somebody reached out to me, hey, we work with the front ensemble at this high school. And it was like the classic situation of, you know, you're going to get, I don't know, $2,000 for the entire season. And then the schedule is like three rehearsals a week, plus every weekend there's a football game, plus there's parades and all of that. And I went to a a colleague of my, a, a classmate of mine, a grad student who had a lot of experience with this type of thing. I said, what should I do? Because I really want to teach. Like, I want to get some experience. Um, I'm interested in the program, but like, if you do the math, it comes out to, I don't know, like less than $10 an hour and it was driving and all that. Um, so anyway, what, what I ended up doing was asking around what would be a good hourly rate for my teaching, came up with a number. And I said to the band director, what, you know, what if, I work as many hours that meet the amount of money in your budget and I won't be at every football game, but I'll do this, you know, this number of rehearsals. And um, I think I, I've recommended something similar to students and that's maybe a good way to handle it. Otherwise it's um, sometimes you end up with like net zero because of the gas you're spending to get to the marching band job and, and just the number of hours that you spend. It's, it's too much. Yeah. Yeah, and I want to just chime in because this is, I've been talking to my students um, here about this and, you know, because they found out in the studio that even though they work for the same school, at the same high school, one person is paid, I think, twice as much as the other two people. Why? Because they asked for it. And the other two people didn't, it didn't occur to them that this is something where they can, um, ask because they were as always with your first gig you're just so bloody happy that there's any money involved that you don't even think about it um and i just think that um as you know cameron said there are no internships in the world of music i mean what we do is elitist in so many ways because you have to be well off and you have to have access to resources to be able to pursue this in many ways but also i just think personally no one should ever work for free and you should always, when you're building your rate, I think you should always count your expenses first. Because even though it might seem like, oh my God, it's so much money if they pay me $200 to go play this gig like five hours away. Well, how much gas? And are you going to have lunch? And you're going to lose whatever. I mean, then you're going to end up paying $40 on top of that out of your own pocket 
to play for some people who could have probably paid you more. So I think um, it's really important to put in your expenses first. And as Carly said, you know, just calculate it and always ask for more, I think. And you should always ask for more because that raises everybody's rate. Like if they're trying to hire someone in town and nobody says yes to this rate, then they have to wake up to the reality that nobody wants to work for this money and there needs to be more money budgeted for this kind of service. So I feel like we're always doing everyone a favor when we, when we raise our prices. Um, all right, so now I want to go into negotiation talk. I've just been talking to people and asking, hey, have you had your negotiation for your first big orchestra gig or first job or whatever? And most people said no. And I was really furious. I really became furious when it was really talented, amazing people who were just like, no, I was just so happy that I got a job. And I was like, but you're worth so much more. They're so lucky to have you. And so Cameron had a negotiation yesterday. Will you tell us about it? Yeah. So um, I'll try to keep this as short as I can, but this is kind of a longer story with the, with the symphony here in Columbus. And, um, and I feel just to put it out there, I'm not trying to air any dirty laundry or anything like that. I think uh, I can probably make all of this public, but I'll try to not use names, I, I guess. Um, anyways, I, I've been playing in Columbus since the end of 2017. So just about five years now. And I was uh, always on the sub list, I ended up moving on to the ranked sub list, we have a ranked and then that goes to an unranked list on the hiring side of things. And then somewhere uh, towards the very beginning of COVID, everybody retired from the percussion section. The list uh, of associates, which are the subs, got moved around. I was at the top of the list at that point. Um, I, I got moved over a few people who had been subbing longer than I had. There's a little bit of awkwardness in that. But I was also the person that was local and able to take care of all the logistics and the gear stuff. Uh, at that point, you make $171 at the time per service. Pretty decent per service pay. And then as a principal, you make 20% extra on top of that. It's a 28-week orchestra at the time, but we're dealing with COVID and all this kind of stuff. So I was just happy to be in the principal spot. I didn't know how long this was going to last before an audition was held. So that's kind of the setup for it. So over the course of the last two and a half years then, um, it was made very clear to me, we are not going to be auditioning for this principal percussion job. Frankly, between all of us here and whoever else listens, I'm not going to win an audition. You know, like I don't sit and practice excerpts. Um, if the audition came up, I would practice my butt off for as long as I possibly could to get prepared for it. But God only knows what's going to happen in that audition, you know? So to me, I kind of liked where the job was for a while, which was just this loose thing where I was hired as the first call sub, but principal too. Um, eventually it became clear to me, like how much work there was behind the scenes when COVID was more or less done, I would say about a year ago when things were really falling off and, and the gigs were all coming back you're playing a pop show, like a movie here, a full thing, you know, full classical program, all of the part assignments, the stage plots, the gear, the maintenance, like all this stuff, it became clear to me how much work there actually was outside of playing as a principal percussionist. Not to mention, you know, when a symphony under hires and you're covering four parts as one person on a janky drum set, multi setup. I just got to a point where I had to make it, I had to go tell somebody, hey, I need more money. And that happened, I think, in, I want to say it was April of this year. We played four C interludes. I felt like I was getting ragged on by the conductor, who I, lo I love the conductor, but he was going hard uh, on me. And I was so frustrated, and I just, like, blurted out, are you going to audition this job or not? And uh, he was kind of, like, taken aback by that and said no. 
our priorities are elsewhere. We don't plan on having an audition for this job for the foreseeable future. That could be the number I was given from somebody else was three to 10 years, which is insane to keep that position in limbo. But they want strings. They want a fourth horn, a second trombone before they want a principal percussionist. That's their prerogative. Uh, eventually, I got so sick of this that I went to, to talk to them and I just I finally laid it out there. We had a meeting and I said, I believe that when I play, uh, you know, I bring this value to the orchestra. This is what I believe, like I'm like any other principal in the orchestra, and I'm being underpaid by $20,000 if you estimate my money. Um, $20,000 is not a small amount of money for me making thirty-eight from the orchestra outside of like what the other stuff I do. 20000 is like a lot of money for that. So I thought it was important to advocate for myself, and I asked for weekly principal scale which is what a full-time employee would make whenever I was there and played a full round of services that week. That was denied. They said, we can do a side contract. Uh, maybe we can pay you a flat stipend for nothing related to your performing because there's union contracts, but maybe we can relate it to you being a percussion manager, maintenance, this kind of stuff. I said, okay. Well, that number ended up being offered between five and $600 extra per month, which equals out to $6,000 to $7,200 extra per year. That gets me up to about 42. That's not even what a full-time player in the orchestra is making, <laughs> right? And I'm doing more work as a principal percussionist than any other principal in the orchestra besides a concert master because wow. of the logistics involved. So it got a little, um, it got uncomfortable for a while. We had meetings about once a month, nothing was getting figured out. And so finally, like two weeks ago, I sent an email uh, and I was like, it is imperative that we meet. Uh, by the end of October, this needs to be figured out. We had talked about some some number. I don't know, $800, $900 extra per month, which gets me up to about 47 48 something like this. And then what happens the first day of the season um, was that they announced they had appointed three new violinists. And appointing means no audition, right? So three section Hi. violins making full-time pay plus health insurance. That's a $60,000 investment. And I'm asking for less than 60 by myself. So I, we went in and we had a meeting and it was very tense. And this was, this was about a uh, little, little under two weeks ago. And he said, what happened to that number we were talking about? I said, oh, that number changed. I was like, I can't unknow the fact that you appointed three violinists ahead of the principal percussion job. And now I am asking you for full principal pay or I will not be here anymore. And when you're negotiating, you have to be willing to walk away if you're going to be a hard ass and you're going to ask for a big amount of money because 20K is a lot for them. It's money that I know they have. I know the budget of the organization. And it struck a chord with them when I started saying, you prioritize these people over me. And I don't care what your priorities are. I know what mine are. And mine is financial stability. And I have all these other things going on in my life that you don't need to know about, health bills and all that stuff. But... I need this figured out or I have to walk away. Um, they told me they would give me a call. They were going to talk to some people. They talked to them. They came back to me and they said, this is, and I promise I'm getting to the end of this. They said, we cannot cut you a side deal. It's too much money. We don't feel comfortable with it. The only thing you can do now is ask us to appoint you. And, by, and what you have to do is send us an email by tomorrow, and it has to tell us exactly why you should be appointed. So I didn't have any time. This was this week. This was on Wednesday. So I stayed up till four in the morning and I wrote an email spilling my heart, drinking whiskey, no misspellings <laughs> somehow, uh, spilling my heart out saying like, this is why I deserve this. And this is the value I bring to your organization. And if you don't do it, I'm going to walk away. And I sent them examples of all the work I do. 
And right before we played Carmina Burana on Friday night, two minutes before we started playing, the COO walked up behind me and tapped me on the shoulder. And I'm sitting in front of the snare drum and the gong. And he leans over and he's like, I had a good conversation with the conductor. He believes in you. We're either going to give you 20K or appoint you principal percussionist and walked away. And so to me, like, this was the most, I've, I've been in tears like every day. Like, I don't know what I'm going to do. If I lose this money, I've got to figure some things out in my life, but you've got to be willing to walk away. And uh, it worked out because I took a respectful tone the whole time. I had supportive reasons. I understood the needs of the organization, I think. And I never overreached, I guess, in our, in our talks. We can get into this more specifically, but I'm counting it as a victory. Nothing is signed yet, but it's going to get signed early this week. So that's where I'm at, <laughs> all right? But um, it taught me a lot about what it means to sit down in a meeting with somebody and tell them to their face, like, I like being here. I am worth more than you're paying me, and I will walk away, and it's nothing personal. Yes, yes. I am so glad you did that. I am so, so glad you did that. And I think that's so important. And I mean, it's horrible that it was frust that frustrating and that it took them so long to figure out or to, I don't know, come, come like, I don't, I don't know, just re not even realize, I'm sure they knew how uh, precious you were to them, but just like, that stuff needs to happen. And that stuff needs to happen more. And I think musicians everywhere need to stop being afraid mm -hmm. that they are um, you know, there, yes, there are a million people out there looking for jobs, but you're you and you genuinely are special. And if you're not going to fight for yourself, like who's going to do it? Um, so there's I think a, that's, that's amazing. There's a, there's a big problem though. And this is what I started really thinking about as I went through all of this, which was if I, you know, if I walked away from this and you go down the list of, of people, there actually are really there's nobody else on this list that can do this because they're not local. You have to have a local person to do your principal percussion job or else it doesn't work. Um, that was one, one thing. And I started thinking about the organizational aspect of it. And I tried to make that clear to them without threatening them. But I realized like they could just call somebody. I, I don't even know who it would be. Right. And, and say, Hey, come in. We're going to, we can't give you a contract, but we'll put you first on our list. You can be our, our faux principal, just like this guy was who just left. You can come in and do this job. And how many people would be like, hell yeah, let's do that for that amount of money. And then they get there, they spend two years doing it like I did it. And they go, what the fuck is this? You know, like it, it, it legitimately, I, I don't want to say it blows my mind. It makes perfect sense. There's a glut of players. There's a shortage of jobs. It, it hurts me to my core that we are willing to like when, when I saw a posting the other day, I don't know, a month or two ago for an orchestra that was paying you guys might've seen this an orchestral percussion talk or something. It was paying yeah. like $12,000. It was some stupid small amount of money, the excerpt list. And here's all the commitments. And you're like, what the fuck is wrong with this? You yeah. know, that's a problem. And the fact that we're all groveling for these low paying jobs at some point, you're right. Like we, yeah, it might've been what you guys just said in the chat. I, I don't know, but we all collectively have to advocate for ourselves or else like one person doing it is great here and there, but we all need to collectively do it. I think as percussionists specifically, because nobody knows what we go through with our gear, with all the other stuff that goes on. Um, yeah, I'll stop there. But I, I, this whole thing is, has really opened my eyes to our fraught relationship with money as percussionists. Yeah, for sure. And I was going to say there was a, I once experienced a brilliant example of people uniting and things changing. Um, there were some issues. This was when I was in Belgrade and there were some issues with the principal timpanist. 
and um, he was taken off the gig for the foreseeable future and they started calling the rest of us to to do the thing obviously I was at the bottom of the list because I was like 19 or whatever but we all agreed that nobody's going to take the job so the orchestra had to pay a guy from Switzerland to come in and that guy literally to bring him over for one, for one concert because our pay was about $60 per week yeah. it was $10 per service to fly that guy in, to put him in a hotel and to pay him a rate that would get him out of Zurich mm-hmm. was literally like nine months of salary for this timpanist. And they had to wake up to like, for sake, like we can't, this is not sustainable to pay this salary for the Zurich guy the whole time. And he was a lovely person. That's not a problem, but like, that's, that's, that's exactly what uniting does. And I think again, if just everybody agrees that they're not going to play for free, Um, And this is, you know, you could play for free if you see it as your volunteer work. I think that's, that's awesome. If you see something has value and you want to go and donate your time, you're literally like, I'm donating my time. That's awesome. Do not agree to play for low money, especially not for institutions or for billionaires (laughs) or whatever. Like that just doesn't make sense. Um, so this has been a, an amazing uh, conversation about mm-hmm. about negotiations, and I wanted to um, see what the rest of the room thinks about negotiating and rates and so on. I had a quick question. Hello, Casey. Hey, hey, everyone. Sorry, I'm so late, and and I hope this hasn't been covered already. Hey, Cameron. Thanks for that hey, cool yeah. story. Um, you, you know what you just say, Casey, about like if everyone ask for more it'll kind of elevate everyone I guess I'm kind of curious like what do you guys feel about that whole idea of you know when when um people are just starting out and they'll take pay that um is generally considered beneath us beneath everyone everyone's worth but they're just so hungry for experience and they're just so hungry for like anything on their resume that they'll that you know some of the community gets mad at them and says like no don't take that gig because that'll teach these contractors that it's okay to pay that um i don't know what what do do you guys think about that is that person acting irresponsibly by taking the gig no no i don't think so i mean they, they don't they can't know any better if you're at that stage i don't think it's just well, well, and I agree with that too. But I'm also it, that sounds kind of counter what we're what we're advocating right. for because we're also saying like, oh no, we all have to do it. So what do we say to those people that are just like, well, they have like literally nothing. Well, I think there's only so much we can control. If if, but what I'll say is if I'm asked to do a job, like I was recently asked to do something for an organization, and I said, hey, this is not enough money that you're offering me, and. They said, well, this is all we have. And my response was, then you need to ask one of my college students to do it. You know, at that mm-hmm. point, I'm, I'm identifying that that is that kind of a job for that amount of money. And that's appropriate. But if they, for instance, would go straight to a college student, a bigger organization that should be attracting a higher talent pool, and they go that, there and they just get cheap labor, I think that's a different thing because then no professional has that ability to say that first and identify what what it is that that organization's doing which is in my mind at that point that's kind of like predatory in a way you know mm-hmm. so okay cool like and i agree with that like it's it's so it sounds like it's a little more a more nuanced argument than like hey we just all have to do it because we're not all at the same place because i've gotten in that argument before 
where I, I tell a student like, yeah, sure, take it. And then they get mauled on Facebook or something. And people are like, no, you can't do it. Don't do it. You're, show, you're teaching people that they can devalue us and underpay us. And, you know, so it's a, it sounds like it's, it's, it's complicated to me. Oh yeah, I mean, of course, yeah, and I we we know what you're talking about there. But I think, you know, one thing that I try to do personally is anytime I people reach out to me and ask for whether some of my students can do something, I always ask what their budget is, and if they are asking, if they come back to me and they're like, oh, well, actually, what would be reasonable for this? I always ask for more, like for my students. If I am if I am negotiating on behalf of my students, I'm always negotiating for more. That just is, I think, what it's like the minimal thing I can do. Go Carly. Or sorry, go Caleb. Uh pass. It, no, no, no. It's not, it's not like I have a controversial take. It's just belaboring. It's just agreeing and belaboring the point. It's the same thing. So I'll, I'll pass to Carly. Well, so Ksenia, one of the questions you put in, in the doc um, was about, here, I'll, I'll read the question if you don't mind. The, the culture of playing for exposure is rampant with young people particularly exploited. When do you think is the right time for a young person to start getting paid for performances? And I read this earlier and thought, um, most of us kind of know. Like, I think we all went through, you know, we probably played some free community orchestra gigs or low paying gigs at some point when we were students. And at a certain point, you you realize, I don't feel good about what I'm getting from this, and I can't do it anymore. I don't want to do it, or I'm ready to pass it on. I think most people kind of know when that time is, and some people probably hold on to it longer, and some people are probably ready to let go. And, you know, like Cameron's talking about being willing to walk away um, a little bit easier. But um, I think I think that probably people kind of sense, you know, I, I always tell students, if you're not getting it, a, a gig needs to be rewarding and it needs to be rewarding financially and it needs to be rewarding musically, artistically. And this one's kind of hard to tell, but it needs to be rewarding um, ideally that it will help you with better opportunities for the future. And if you're lacking one or two of those things, it can be really hard to continue doing it. So um, the, the other thing I want to talk about, I don't have the chat open, hopefully I'm not steamrolling, but is cartage because uh, Cameron's talking about all of the extra work that principals do in an orchestra when you're freelancing um, or, or when you're full-time in an orchestra that is sometimes under um, underappreciated financially, but cartage is something I want to make sure that, that we touch on because I think a lot of times these lower level gigs either say, oh, I don't have money to give anyone cartage. Yeah, but nobody's bringing timpani and a bass drum and a block and who knows what else. So um, just kind of keeping your, your finger on the pulse of how much is okay for cartage. A, a lot of local AFM uh, chapters have cartage lists online that are publicly available. Um, join the AFM, AFM if you're in an area where that's um, useful in an area where that's common and, and that they really protect people. Um, it's a wonderful thing to do, but also the cartage list can be really beneficial. Yeah, I was just going to add really quickly to what Carly said that like cartage and instrument rentals, that's that there's a lot of money to be had in that. And in fact, many episodes ago, we talked with Jonathan Haas, who runs like the, the percussion and uh, instrument rental company in New York City. 
Um, and, and he said, like, when he first started performing, like, he was making more money from renting out his own instruments for him to play them than he actually was for playing them. So, yeah, if you're bringing your own marimba or timpani or something like that, that's certainly something that's uh, worthwhile to seek out. And also, Carly and I have a horror story of the time that I forgot the gong for a gig. So <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> How did I know you were going to bring that up? <laughs> <laughs> it comes up every also... time. <laughs> I uh, let, let me uh, add to that that I forgot the gong that Carly had to play so <laughs> we got a gong don't worry <laughs> that's the way it was my horror story <laughs> oh my goodness um so I did a little poll um on Instagram with our um, followers and our poll said that 65% of our audience wished they were paid more while only 35% felt that they were getting paid fairly for their work in music on top of that, 45% of um, the total group said that they make money from a music or an orchestral position. The other 55% said that they have a day job or other. And I don't know, other might mean that they are financially dependent on their families or have other financial resources. Um, so I think if the numbers I'm estimating here right, it means that only about, what, 20% of musicians, 15% of musicians feel like they're paid properly for their work, um, which is just um, in, in music, which is just uh, alarming, um, I think. And um, yeah, I was, I was wondering again, what does everyone, uh, what does everyone think about the state of this? I wonder how those numbers compare to, um... The, you know the the world in general not just music because i feel like we're in the middle of a kind of social economic movement where people are realizing their time is worth more and their energies and efforts are worth more and work-life balance is really important um so i don't have those statistics but i i feel like that's a really common feeling in every field yeah i think i think a lot of this deals with too like when we're talking about asking for more money or feeling underpaid negotiating uh this just popped into my head sorry if i'm kind of getting off off track but it's just that you have to really keep in mind the organization you're talking about too like if, if we're talking about uh, carly you're just talking about cartage and freelance orchestral work and stuff like this it depends on the organization if you can ask for more money you know like some 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 small operations obviously you're just not going to have it um, if you're locked into a per service rate with an orchestra, there's no way you're going to go to them and be like, I need more per service because I'm special, you know, like as a sub, like that doesn't, that doesn't exist. You can't do that. Uh, my case was unique in that sense, but like cartage, I think it's important. I just want to like reiterate, like the cartage thing, you can go to anybody at any time and say, as long as you're not under AFM rules and it's like specifically spelled out, if you're doing a freelance gig, it's like, I need 150 bucks or I'm not doing it. I'm not bringing my bass drum and my timpani and stuff. But I think you really have to keep in mind like what the organization is and whether you can ask for more money based on their contracts and the stuff that they're operating under. Um, I think and, you know, you guys that teach at universities, I I barely teach at a university right now, you know, so like I as an adjunct, I can't really go negotiate more money unless it's some flat fee to do like a master class or something at Capital. Um, but I don't know how it works in your jobs, whether or not you can go and ask for higher pay. Like, I'm not sure if that's on a scale or, or what, but. And keeping the organization in mind too and before i before i shut up i just want to say I, I got a little nervous saying all that about the columbus symphony i want to say over the years for anybody that's listening i've been treated very well by the symphony this is my caveat uh and i love working there but at some and they actually 
so were very supportive and they commended me on advocating for myself, which was a positive thing at the end of that discussion. All right, I'm done. Let it, let it fly is the motto here, Cameron. You know that. What's that? Let it fly. I said, let it, let it fly is the motto here. You, you know that, you know. That. Oh yeah. I, I learned that. Unfortunately. <laughs> I just had a, a quick, like funny negotiating story. I have a friend uh, that our saxophone professor here, he was uh, interviewing for a job one time and he had his number and they had their number. And so he said, well, I was thinking, you know, this number and the department chair said, well, the problem with that is that if we pay you that, we're actually paying you more than people that have been here for a while. And my friend said, yeah, I thought about that and I'm okay with that. <laughs> uh, I don't know about y'all. Uh, we're paid on a market matrix that the state of Missouri does. So we're everyone that's basically enters a Missouri State University between the years of, I think it was like 2019 to 2023 is paid the same rates. And then after your first year, they can fluctuate, but it's pretty, it's pretty standard in these parts for me, at least. Does Nobody else, else wants to talk about their salary. <laughs> Nobody else wants to talk about this. But y'all um, I mean, do, y'all I mean, do like still, do y'all still like post-it notes and like paper clips? I supplement, I supplement by just <laughs> taking from the office supply <laughs> cabinet. Yeah, remind like me the uh, the the time thief episode a little bit from the office. Time thief. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Time thief. I mean, it's pretty it's pretty set in stone. I think. I mean, I think in at, at least um, I, it sounds like now we're talking about university situations. I mean, it's, it sounds like it's pretty out of our control and out of our immediate administration, even two or three levels up's control. Um, from from what I understand, so it's yeah it's 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 very public it's very open but it's also um, yeah I mean you can certainly ask they they won't it's no problem to ask at all but but there's like a, a system in place uh, like if there's a option for a merit pay pay merit pay raise at 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 most universities and it's like very you know detailed how that's what the basis for that is and the the procedure it would go through and, and all those things. Yeah. And I was going to say also, I think there's a lot of people, especially who have not negotiated in their lives, they think it's offensive to do so, but it really isn't because if you're getting a job offer and they send you a number and you think you deserve more, or you have a counter offer that, you know, asks for more, but you really want to work at this place, you just say that and they'll move if they can. And if they can't, they won't. The decision is still up to you whether you're going to work there for the money that they're offering. It's not like if you disagree that first time, especially when there's a job offer on the table, that you have to leave. You can still agree to whatever they're offering. So um, so, so regarding that is, um, I, I guess, what's, what's everyone's perception? Like if you're the top three at a university job position or even an orchestra job position if you're in the top three and you're number one do you think they really want you like a lot more than two and three i think, I think that would probably depend on the quality of the candidates yeah right right what do you think is typical i guess is what i'm asking do you think usually the top three are like pretty close or do you think there's usually like like how safely can you assume that they really want you more than number two. 
I mean, I would say that if you are number one, they will do everything in their power to get you what you want, whether there's a huge discrepancy or not. At least that's what I've seen. Even if, uh, even if it's asking for a huge bump in salary? I think I, I think that they will do it if they can, but if they can't, then they will say, this is what we can offer and it's up to you to walk. Okay. Yeah. That's what I've seen in my personal experience anyway. And I, okay. I've seen huge discrepancies and I've seen very close races also. Yeah, I, I, really I feel like, on, well, I just, I feel like on hiring committees I've been to, I feel like on hiring committees I've been on, like usually we're like, wow, these top three are like awesome. And we'd be happy with any one of them. And I'm pretty sure if, I'm just saying like, if, if, if we, um, if we went to our, the person with the actual money and said, hey, we want number one, but number one wants more money, the administration would say like, cool, how do you like number two? And we would say, we would just give them the honest answer. And then they would say like, cool, you better hire number two then. And, and then if we offer number one, the lower amount, now we're hesitant to give them our initial offer because now we know that they think we're undervaluing them or we, or they're going to come here unhappy. So I don't know. I'm, I'm like not in total agreement with like what I'm hearing about like, Hey, just ask for it. It's okay. Like, I'm not so sure. I think usually they're very happy with their front runners. Yeah. I mean, well, I think that a couple of things come to mind here. Uh, one is that the person, there's a committee that recommends the top candidate or whatever, or you know, candidates ranked. Um, but then the, department head or whoever is the one that's doing the hiring so i don't think it's like at least from what i've seen and again it's probably different in different places the department head's not actively talking to the committee and going back and forth like that um and then likewise also like just to be clear like the way you said that it almost made it sound like if you ask they'll just say nope we're going to number two like i think that it's it's always safe to ask they, i mean yeah they can turn it down of course but I don't think but that your no, first saying, thing you say back will knock you out of a job. Sure, but what I'm saying is that now you know you have to hire them at a salary they don't want and you now you're hesitant to do it. And I'm just saying like if you're also like about as happy with number 2, you may just go with number 2 rather than hire someone who's going to be unhappy. Yeah, but I mean it's like who's to say that number 2 in their mind their salary preference isn't even higher than person number 1. But, but then you talk to them, you say like, hey, how would you accept this amount? And if they say like, yeah, that's great. Well, then, you know, I mean, you would ask, you know, that's why you talk, talk it all through. Interesting. I've heard of many uh, different scenarios, including that, you know, people only have a number one and then nobody else is acceptable. And it's like a failed search if they don't uh, accept. And, you know, failed searches happen all the time. So it's. I think at some institutions you might get a batch of really awesome people and then you're okay with the top 15 coming to work with you. And then at others, you're really like, I want only number one and everyone else is not okay. gonna cut it, so. Sure, um, sure, yeah, of course. The, I, and I guess I'm just saying like, I, I wouldn't expect or like make any big decisions when it's like, if you're not sure, that's why I asked you guys like, how reasonably sure can you be that like your number one is way above number two? Like, if you could be sure of that, then great, you're safe in asking for this bump. But if you're not sure of that, which in my experience, they're all always very close. By the time you get to the finals, every, you're like, you would be happy with any of those ones. Um, so I'm not that I've done this uh, like a, a huge amount of times, 
but that's why I would say like, yeah, how reasonably sure can you be that the gap is large? Well, I would say, yes, many, many different outcomes, but uh, choose for yourselves. Luckily, that's, that's the way money works. So you can pick your battles. Um, we have just a few Instagram questions uh, from our uh, listeners, and we're going to direct these at Cameron Ochpa8265, um, for example, or Opa. Uh, asked, how do you determine the difference in a daily rate for places within two hours and all others? Let's say that Cameron is our designated expert here. Um, I don't know. A day rate kind of thing is a little bit arbitrary, you know, like it just it really depends on what the gig is. But for me, if you want to steal me away and you're going to have me indefinitely for the day, that could be eight, 12 hours, whatever. I'm just going to say you got to give me 500 bucks, you know, like that's typically what I'm going to say. And that does not include if I'm going to play like a recital or solo pieces, that's like you steal me away for something that is um less intense work i guess um, yeah. and then if it's like if it's a set thing where you know it's like i'm gonna go do this for four hours a pretty safe rate getting out of school is 50 bucks an hour I, in my in my opinion you know once you get a master's maybe you move that up or something um again it really depends on the work but like i talk to audio techs in town guys that are like unionized stagehands who do audio stuff on the side and yeah 400 500 bucks these are like common day rates for people yeah, cool. Um, Orson uh, Abra, I'm sorry, I'm. Or, I know Orson. Yeah, oh, you know yeah. Orson. Orson yeah. asked, "Is your artist fee for a performance dependent on equipment needs or travel?" Yes, dependent on everything. Um, for me, travel doesn't have anything to do with the fee, and travel's got to be paid or reimbursed or paid separately. Equipment. It's not about equipment. It's just about like how. What What's the gig? What am I going to play? You know, if it's if it's uh, there's a lowest rate for me to play a recital, and then if it's going to be like the heavy hitters, I'm going to go play a serious program of 90 minutes. Let's say it's all with electronics. I need to hire a sound tech. There's all these considerations. That's going to be much more expensive than, um, you know, if I show up and you want me to do like a 30 minute set at a museum just to kind of entertain, that's going to be a little different. But yeah, I think my low number, like for Orson, I kind of mentioned earlier is like, I'm not going to take less than $1,000 to play a concert anymore. That just, you just can't do it for less than that. And it's probably going to be more, you know, once, because once you get for, for those out there, like once you get a certain number, you don't want to make below that number, or you only want to make a little bit below that. So like my most expensive recital is $2,000 that I've ever made, which is really not that much money um, for a recital, but it felt really good to get paid two grand to play a show. And now I'm like, one is the low, you know, <laughs> no more $750 concerts. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, last one from Ryan Carlisle uh, saying, I want to learn more about setting up multiple income streams, teaching performances, mm. composition, arranging, endorsements, da, 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 whiskey. Endorsements is not an income stream. Let's be clear. Uh, yes. What do endorsements really do? Um, yes. They're, they're, they're fun to chase. That's all that they're good for. No, they can be good. I, I'm being facetious. I think when you t talk about multiple income streams, and you guys can probably speak to this too, you really have to weigh how much effort each of those income streams takes. So you don't want to have multiple income streams that are all the same style of um, mental and physical pursuit as a performance. Like, I don't want to do something that's equally as draining creatively, mentally, and physically as performing as my side hustle. That's crazy. So like the whiskey thing I'm doing, there's a lot of residual income involved with Patreon and YouTube. 
Um, it's much less work and it's, it's not live necessarily. Like I can cut up the videos, I can edit. It's, it's more controlled and safe. So to me, it's a different style of income. I think composing, I'm not a composer. I'm not the one in the room to speak to this, but like that is a creative pursuit, which might tax the same part of your brain as performing. So for me, it's like, I wouldn't want composing to be a side income stream for me because that's going to cut into my performing chops just mentally. Um, so I think it's really depending on what that other thing is. Like if you can just turn your brain off and go work at Starbucks part-time, that's great too, because you know, it's not draining you the same way that maybe these other things are. Yeah. And this is also something to find out on your own as you grow up and you try a day job and you see that that drains you or it doesn't, or you feel like really relieved to not have to think about uh, creative endeavors during that time. So this is something to sort of consider uh, on your own and pursue. Um, could I ask just as a pie chart, can people tell me uh, in their income streams, hi, Robin, <laughs> it's bedtime, uh, in their income streams, um, how, how are they split up? Teaching versus composition versus royalties versus whatever. Is that everybody in the room? So everybody in the room. Whiskey versus percussion versus... Well, I can start if you want. I mean, I think orchestral playing for me is... Well, it just increased, I think. Hopefully. Uh, we'll see on Monday. I would say it's probably like 60%, you know, of the pie chart. And then uh, whiskey is like 20 now, like which is which is a great number. And that's... Nice. Continuing to grow, and that will always continue to grow, which is what's really nice about it. And the work stays the same. Um, and then, like the so, and this is just right now. And then solo playing and other freelancing stuff like that is probably the other twenty. Um, teaching is so minimal; I'm not even going to count it because it's fifty dollars a lesson adjunct pay. It's some serious bullshit, but that's fine. That's the <laughs> game. That's the game we all play. Uh, so sixty twenty twenty maybe, and then hopefully that's starting to starts to flip around a little bit when I get back to playing solo shows. Cool. Anybody else? I am. I mean, I was a hundred percent on my teaching salary because I couldn't do anything else until this year, and we will find out after this year what my income streams are. Uh, mine's mine split between composing and teaching, and I, I guess I consider composing and performing and doing like artist residencies and invitations and things like that kind of all part of the same pool, but uh, teaching at the, at the James Madison University, certainly the, the bulk of it. And then I don't know, yeah, the, uh, the extra stuff um, in the composing and performing, this is seems like a little extra on top. Yeah, my, similar to Casey, mine's probably like a, I don't know, a 65, 35 split between university pay and publishing commission sales stuff like that yeah it well it's it's changed so much for me in the last three two and a half years since covid like i was i was probably close to 50 50 teaching and playing um mostly orchestral gigs and then covid happened and i was really glad for that other 50 percent of teaching that kept going online like a lot of people were um now of course i'm teaching full-time which is amazing so it's a much bigger portion but I'm finding I can do more solo and chamber playing and residencies master classes that kind of thing and still have some orchestral work so it's hard I, I my my pie chart if I were to draw it would be a little fuzzy on the edges I'm not sure exactly where all the numbers work out but um, I think it's normal that it that it shifts especially with our careers shifting and changing uh, I would say I, I very similar to Carly it's like the 
the teaching is definitely the uh, lion's share of it. Cool. Cool, cool. Very cool. Well, thank you, um, Cameron, so much for being with us and being so candid as always. Lovely backdrop. Everybody, if you are not on YouTube, you gotta go and see this is not a green screen. This is real. <laughs> yeah. Just to prove it, Cameron, can you just go grab a bottle and take it off the shelf? That is not Ooh. a green screen. Look at that. Wow. Oh my God. Chug it. Chug it. Chug Let's it. go. <laughs> okay. Okay. So 30 bucks. You have 30 bucks. What's yep. the ideal whiskey? To get for just thirty dollars. Go. Good question. Good question. Yeah, cut all cut the last hour out. This is what we need. <laughs> Good all job. Right, so Good. if you're gonna go bourbon, uh, I'm gonna say Russell's ten is gonna be the go-to for me. Ninety proof, easily you know, easy approachable, but ten years old. Good oaky influences, uh, classic bourbon notes. If you go, uh, if you wanna go a little higher proof, hundred proof, you want something with a little more bite. Cooper's Craft 100 from Brown Foreman, the makers of Old Forester, Woodford Reserve, Jack Daniels. Um, this is a little bit fruitier, but also a little bit spicier. And if you want to go scotch and you don't want something that tastes like a rubber tire or a Band-Aid, I would say Glenmorin G10. That's a really nice starter scotch. So all those around 30, 35 bucks. You heard it here, folks. Oh. That percussion is brought to you by Russell's Whiskey, <laughs> Alcoholism, and Depression is what we've covered today. And you don't want to know my pie chart for expenditures. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, you have more bottles behind you than I have mallets, I think. I mean, it's, well, that's where all the collect. So as a kid, it was Pokemon, Yu-Gi-Oh!, Magic the Gathering, and then it was mallets, and now it's just whiskey. <laughs> it's adult trading cards. <laughs> Amazing. The best party ever is in Cameron's. Is that your basement? No, this is my spare bedroom. Oh, my, oh. my wife's not happy about it, but that's okay. <laughs> looks beautiful. Looks beautiful. <laughs> no, just she actually loves whiskey, which is so helpful. <laughs> yeah, I can it's imagine. It's very helpful. Like we are on our anniversary. I found the most I've ever spent. I spent $2,000. I know, God help me. On this bottle of whiskey that the dump date of the of the barrel it's a single barrel the only one sent to singapore in 2021 uh of this bottle of blanton's um i spent two grand on it because it was dumped on our wedding day so we opened it on our anniversary so that's that's what makes that kind of stuff special you know is is that kind of thing but oh do they have I'll that never... like sam's club or, or, or can i <laughs> no. get that the 7-eleven or you know, it's like uh, the... on the illegal secondary market in a facebook group <laughs> cut that out no i'm just kidding Perfect. Well, thank you, everybody, for a uh, wonderful, candid conversation. And uh, we'll catch you on the next episode. Bye.